Well, I am absolutely pleased to be here tonight um, and talk a little bit about something that I'm really passionate about, and that's wildlife and wildlife damage. I've been in the wildlife um, control industry for, gosh, almost 20 years now. And uh, I uh, first um, was introduced to Nachi um, uh, within this last year, had the opportunity to uh, to spend some time at the House of Horrors in Boulder. And boy, if you have not gone to that experience, that is just a, a, a really great facility, great training. Um, it's an absolute must. It's an absolute must. Um, and the folks uh, there, the instructors were just so, um, so relatable, um, so great to work with, great instructors. Um, you truly have a, a wonderful organization. And I'm pleased to be here tonight to talk about wildlife damage, a little bit about myself. Um, like I said, I've uh, been in the industry for about 20 years. Kind of a funny story. I used to work as a case manager for a mental health organization. And I was making less than $24,000 a year. Um, had, you know, working on my master's degree, finishing my thesis. Um, and I was burned out. Um, had a caseload, uh, a ton of clients. Um, I just needed a change. And my girlfriend brought home some groceries and uh, had a, a case of pop cockroach ran out $300 later. Um, you know, we uh, we had the problem solved pretty quickly. But in that time, it made me realize, gosh, I'm doing something wrong with my life. Um, making less than $24,000 a year would take forever to pay off my student loans. So uh, I took a $200 course through Purdue University. And uh, next thing you know, I'm licensed in the state of Illinois. I was a veteran, a, a U.S. Navy veteran. And um, uh, they were looking for, for guys to work for the Department of Defense overseas. Uh, had no experience other than my training, but they picked me up. I spent two years in the deserts of Kuwait uh, doing pest control and wildlife removal. That's kind of how I got my start. And I thought I would just do that for a while until I figured out what I'd do with my life. Turns out it pays pretty darn well being in the trades. So you guys have an opportunity to make a lot of money, uh, to grow your business, to be in control of your finances. And that's a great thing. Um, came back from the sandbox, uh, 2006, uh, worked for animal control for a while, uh, while my business was getting up and up and running. And I, I opened and operated a pest control company in Illinois for Oh, gosh, until um, 2019. Uh, in 2019, uh, we closed that office and uh, started an office in 2018, about a year earlier in Colorado. And I uh, worked there for about four years until I sold that operation. And now I do consulting and training for our industry. Um, I am, uh, uh, I've been so pleased to be part of NACOA, and we'll talk about NACOA as well. NICOA is the National Wildlife Control Operators Association. And uh, NICOA does the same kinds of things that NACI does. Uh, we develop training and standards for our industry. We promote safety. We figure out how to get folks the tools necessary to be able to thrive, uh, to make a lot of money in their industry, and to be safe while doing it. And so here, we're going to bring these two worlds together. And we're going to talk about how to identify wildlife damage in structures. There's three uh, creatures that are probably the most important to talk about. There's a ton of creatures out there, but really there's three. Um, we're gonna talk about safety during inspections. We're gonna talk about squirrels, raccoons, and bats. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about ectoparasites in the end, all those critters that kind of hitchhike along uh, and come along for the ride. So the purpose of this webinar is to help home inspectors in the proper methods of observing and identifying structural animal damage. Uh, we're going to be talking about residential structures here. We're not going to touch on too much commercial. This webinar is not designed to instruct inspectors on how to remove or handle wildlife. Uh, it does not qualify home inspectors to comment about the kinds of animal removal and remediation is what is or is not recommended. Animal damage and sign um, should be referred out to a licensed wildlife control operator who is certified. And any advice that is given that pertains to any legal matters during the course of this webinar is not to be construed as legal advice. I am not an attorney uh, and I cannot advise you on legal matters. I would strongly recommend that you consult with an attorney that is licensed in your state and specializes in your industry. And I'll bet you Nachi could probably help you point you in the right direction. All right, let's talk about safety first. So animals uh, sometimes carry diseases and that's the greatest risk that you have and your and the clients, the, the homeowners um, and the buyers have is that, you know, what are they inheriting? So as a, a rule of thumb, whenever you're entering spaces that could be infested with, with wildlife or pests, we recommend that you wear a Tyvek suit, a disposable um, suit, booties, hoodies, disposable gloves, and a full face respirator with at least a 95, um, an NBUT 95 rating prior to entering or opening up those spaces. And bring two sources of light. You don't want to be caught uh, you know, without uh, a good light source up there. I mentioned Nicoa earlier. The National Wildlife Control Operators Association has some training that's available for you, if you should wish. Um, uh, the zoonotic standards is one training that I would find um, probably useful if I were a home inspector. It talks in great length about the different zoonotic diseases and how they can be transmitted, how you can become more aware of how to prevent that. Uh, it's a great training. Um, you can go to nicoa.com to find more information about that. Dr. Jay Tischendorf, a good friend of mine, is, uh, does that course, and he does an excellent job with it. So be prepared when you enter an attic space or, um, you know, any, any crawl space, any area that's confined and, and has the potential to have wildlife damage within it or feces or historical, um, you know, issues that may have resulted in feces being in there. Be prepared for that stuff to come down. Now, when do you prepare for that? You prepare for that before you pull that hatch down. If you're pulling down a, a ladder um, like this one, that's a convenient way to get in. But, you know, if there are species on that ladder, it can contaminate the living space. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about poop. We'll talk a lot about poop in this, in this webinar. But uh, it's important to put some plastic sheeting or containment down at a minimum uh, before you enter those spaces and have your personal protective equipment on and fitted really well so that when you pull that down or push that at a catch up, that you're protected. And remember that if you have any uh, hesitancy to enter these spaces, if you suspect that there's wildlife um, damage or, or, or feces, um, you know, certainly you can contact a wildlife control operator to 
perform that portion of the inspection. NACOA.com slash consumers is a good place to find information out about NACOA and about how to find an operator that is in your region. And we'll talk more about that later. Here's a snapshot of our current website. It's being updated currently, so um, it'll be a little easier to navigate, hopefully, here in the near future. So these little creatures, uh, chicken of the trees, as I call them, Fox squirrels and gray squirrels. Eastern gray squirrels are probably um, more apt to uh, enter human structures than the fox squirrel, but we see both of these species on a regular basis within structures. They leave droppings, um, of course, that are scattered about. They are not latrine um, seekers. They don't uh, go to the bathroom in a particular spot. They just go to the bathroom wherever they are. And so um, as a result, these droppings are scattered throughout the attic, um, throughout the crawl spaces or wherever they're, they're located in. Uh, droppings can be kind of difficult to determine, you know, exactly what that creature is when you look at nothing but a dropping. So you're going to want to put your detective hat on and kind of look at the different signs. We're going to talk about some common signs that can be seen on the outside of the home but put all the factors together before making any, any diagnosis on what's going on. Squirrel droppings typically are roundish, um, but they do vary in, in size and shape. Um, of course, as the creature grows older, the droppings are going to get bigger. Um, but typically you're looking at a, a, a dropping that um, is you know, pretty small and, um, and scattered about. They vary in color. Uh, pretty much vary with diet. Tree squirrels utilize their teeth by chewing into structures. So it's very common to see exterior damage at certain points around the structure. Um, damage is typically found at roof levels. Squirrels love to enter at roof levels. Um, they're comfortable up there. And uh, that's where they typically enter these two species of squirrels. That's where they typically enter the structure. You can see that uh, aluminum coil stock and aluminum uh, metal is uh, lightweight, is no match for them. They will chew right through that. A favorite chewing spot is the gabled attic vents as well. They're not really too smart of a creature. Uh, they, they, they make up for their lack of intelligence with their persistence. Uh, but you'll see a lot of chewing on these louvers until they figure out that they need to chew one all the way through in order to get it. They do pose some significant health risks as far as fire. Um, and uh, that's important uh, to note. Tree squirrels need about a baseball size hole to enter. They frequently chew the size of the hole that they need typically. Their holes are not going to be much larger than what they need. Now, if we go back to this picture, there's a lot of chewing there, but it's simply because they're, they're, they're just trying to, to find their, they're not smart. They're, they're just not smart creatures. So if they have a more clear cut round hole like this, they're going to they're gonna drill through it um, with their teeth. And um, they typically will not enlarge that hole too much more than about the size of the baseball. If you see additional uh, damage that is larger than a baseball, then you should think maybe raccoon. Think maybe there, there's a history of other creatures as well. In the east and the older structures, we have lead-wrapped uh, pipes. 
And I'm sure many of you, certainly those of you that are viewing that are uh, on the East Coast are gonna see maybe more of this than you would on, the, on some of the newer areas of the country. But lead pipes, um, the, the lead coverings, those squirrels will destroy and damage that through their chewing. Um, and that can lead to some water penetration issues and, and, uh, and whatnot. If squirrels enter through that, that's typically a, um, a one-way death trap. And they will sometimes end up getting, um, you know, they'll, they'll plug it up, they end up having to route it out. It's a lot of fun, except if you're the squirrel, of course. So a very common damage that is across the board uh, from squirrels and raccoons is the damage that they do to insulation. Just the simple process of walking across it reduces that R value and reduces and increases the energy losses for that client. And like I said, they're chewers. So you wanna really be aware that there can be increased risk for fire within structures that have um, tree squirrels in particular. Tree squirrels will actually seek out wiring. They're active chewers. They, this, is, this is something that they do on a regular basis. Um, they, they, really, uh, they really do want to use that, that behavior. And so they're more apt to do that kind of damage in structures than, than most other nuisance wildlife. Let's talk a little bit about these masked bandits, raccoons. Raccoons are nocturnal mammals who are excellent climbers. They're capable of creating a significant amount of damage in a very short period of time. In this home in particular, um, I took out 16 uh, adult raccoons, a single story residential building and uh, horribly infested for probably a decade before they decided they were gonna do something about that problem. There was, I think there was eight or nine entry exit points they were using around that little home. Raccoons um, have oil on their feet and that oil will transfer to construction materials. Uh, sometimes it'll be on an AC unit outside or inside, but that oil really um, absorbs and leaves a good mark on the floor. Um, and it's oftentimes easy to identify them through their, their uh, distinctive footprints. Um, when they're walking, their footprints are a little bit different. Uh, they don't uh, put the heel of their back foot down all the way. They kind of um, walk on their tippy toes so it'll look a little bit different when they're walking. You won't see that elongated um, foot. Frequently people report, um, not that you necessarily are gonna have those reports as home inspectors, but people usually report hearing loud noises, heavy sounding um, as if someone's uh, walking on the roof or walking in the attic. This is a, a video that um, is kind of interesting. It, it's audio I don't think is gonna translate to you guys, but it's not important that you see that. The reason I'm showing you this is, is not the, no, nothing special about that there's a raccoon in that trap. What is special is about showing uh, what you're about ready to see here. This is 60 foot off the ground. They are excellent climbers. They prefer, I would say, to enter at the roof level and they, um, 
you have no problem doing so. So don't think just because that critter looks uh, kind of fat and round that it's not capable of doing some amazing things at heights. Let's talk about poop. I love talking about poop. Um, poop is important in our industry. This poop is disgusting. That's why I put this picture on here. I hope it doesn't offend uh, anyone, but uh, it's an important illustration because it shows uh, what those droppings look like. And raccoons are latrine seekers. So unlike squirrels that defecate randomly, uh, raccoons like to pick latrines and they like to go to the bathroom in spots. So there may be piles in, in attics or crawl spaces or outside of denning sites that you may see that are associated with raccoons. Um, it appears about the size of a medium-sized dog, um, looks like the shape of a human uh, dropping. Um, the dropping color changes uh, substantially given the diet. And of course, uh, when it's wet like that, it's, it's nice and fresh. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, raccoon damage is extensive. Um, they can do an amazing amount of damage in a short period of time. This was January in Illinois. And, um, you know, right through the roof, the client told me that they heard them all night. They got up out, they tried to use flashlights to dissuade it. And it was just dead set on getting into that structure. And you can see uh, the power uh, of raccoons is quite, um, quite substantial. This is one night of damage. The structure was occupied before that, never had any, any history of damage. Um, and we, we, we believe that this, we got the, the, the raccoon was a female. Uh, she was looking to have a denning site for her young. That maternal instinct that raccoons have is incredible. Um, they are good mothers. Uh, they, they want to raise their young in a protected place that doesn't have um, uh, other male raccoons. Male raccoons will kill the young. And so there's a, there's a huge drive for the females to get into a protected um, location that's uh, safe for her young and structures are perfect for that. So if you see damage that is extensive and um, you know just shocking, you're probably dealing with raccoons. Squirrels do not use their, their, their paws like hands. Uh, they do not rip and tear things, but raccoons certainly do. Um, they use their, their, their feet, their front feet in particular, just like our hands, their ability to be um, almost like primate-like with their ability to rip and tear, it's incredible. And so this generates a lot of business for the wildlife control operators out there. Other damage, um, reduction of R value obviously is, is a significant one. With blowing in insulation, that damage can be just overnight. Um, that compaction of that uh, insulation can result in thousands of dollars worth of damage, heat loss, energy loss. Um, having thermal imaging equipment is really uh, a great thing. Um, the inspector outlet, and um, in our industry, we've got wildlife control supplies. Um, those are two places that you can find some uh, some good equipment for inspecting. Um, the thermal imagers, uh, particularly, are useful when uh, when there's young inside the structure that we need to locate, and that's more of a wildlife control operator kind of thing. Um, but in your case, for vaulted roofs. So if you've got a, a vaulted space that's on it, you know, you, you, it's impossible to inspect it, you can use those cameras to see what kind of damage, um, you know, is there. 
most common entry point, I would say, for many creatures is um, soffit to roof intersections. This is an area that we see um, squirrels, raccoons, bats, mice, uh, birds, uh, you name it, will, will enter at the soffit return. This picture is specific to raccoon because it shows that there's been some physical manipulation of that metal. Another really good sign is insulation. So if you go around that house and you're seeing little bits of insulation on the ground, look up and try to figure out if that's a wildlife related issue. They commonly will go into that attic and bring out a little bit of insulation on their feet when they're transferring in and out of that structure. Raccoons will bend that metal. Uh, they'll either uh, rear up and use their, their haunches. It's absolutely incredible to watch. I'm trying to get permission. Um, there's a, a video online that where that shows the raccoon and the, he's, he's pushing up on the soffit and he's bending his body. And it's just an amazing illustration of what these creatures are, are capable of doing. And um, it's a great uh, illustration, but I have not gotten written permission to use that yet. So we'll see if we can get that in the future. Oh, soffit to roof intersections. Um, that's a big one. Another likely entry point is uh, soffit vents. Uh, soffit vents are, um, you know, they, they release heat from the structure. Those uh, critters then sense that heat out of there and they know where to, um, where to manipulate, and where to do damage to enter. Uh, what's particularly true of creatures is that, you know, once you have a problem with wildlife, you're exponentially more likely to continue having problems with that same species. And this is true whether you permanently remove the problem animals or not. Uh, the pheromones that are left behind are significant. And these, these vents are releasing um, heat and uh, ventilation is, you know, the airflow is coming through there, but they can smell the presence of previously, um, previous issues. Frequently, these raccoons will, will climb up the gutter and they'll use gutter points like what you see to hold onto the gutter and to rip that soffit vent out. Gabled uh, attic vents are another very common entry exit point for raccoons and squirrels, bats and birds, you name it. You can see the, um, you know, the, the danger here. You've got some electrical lines that are coming into that structure. Uh, somebody's tacked up some uh, chicken wire thinking that that would do the trick. Chicken wire is no match for raccoons. Um, that was easily bent and uh, reoccupied. Looks like they've ripped off one of the louvers there. And of course, when you're dealing with a situation like this, you can expect to have to um, tell that client that they're gonna have to have the power disconnected to the home in order to resolve that, that issue for safety reasons. Powered attic fans. Um, another really frequent uh, entry exit point for animals is powered attic fans. Um, we see here, uh, the, the louvers are real lightweight in them and they're easily bent either down or up. When you see that bending, keep in mind that's raccoon. Squirrels will enter, they will chew through the lightweight screening around the attic fan, uh, and then they'll enter, but they don't bend things. Raccoons are the benders there. And when they bend those, then it becomes a problem for, uh, for fire reasons. 
um, that uh, that louver can't uh, can't spin when the motor comes on. A lot of times they're um, you know controlled through a thermostat, and when that puppy comes on, it's not going to be able to turn. And hopefully, there's uh, some safety features built into that unit. Uh, I myself have inspected for raccoons and found that there was a, a, a hole already burned out. The guy had a, a, a burn marks on his roof. Um, didn't even wasn't even aware that he had had a fire. Uh, fortunately, we believe that the fire was extinguished through the rain that happened the night before. Um, I can't imagine the home was a 1940s home. Uh, I'm amazed that it didn't go up. But it is a potential. Uh, potentially dangerous things. So inspecting these things is important too to see if there's damage to those units. Bump outs. Uh, so cantilevered bump outs oftentimes contain uh, fireplaces. Um, there's um, there's a plywood sheathing there that's uh, supposed to be on the bottom and then you have insulation above that um, as you guys probably know. Well raccoon in particular will get under there and they feel the heat loss from that sheathing and they just start working at it. And if they're in there, you know, they're just uh, denning right underneath that space, it gets cold. Uh, they're gonna use um, every opportunity to see if they can dig in there. So they'll, they'll open that up. And a lot of times that goes um, unnoticed. The, the homeowner doesn't recognize that there's anything wrong. Can't see the damage maybe. Um, raccoons frequently will ascend and go right into the soffits or attics um, through this point of entry. So if you're out there and you see these cantilevered bump outs, it might be good to stick an inspection mirror under there, see if that sheathing is intact. Um, roof boots. So this stack, stack vent roof boot um, is no match for raccoon. Raccoon only need about a four inch hole to gain access to a structure. I know it, it's amazing. You, you think of these raccoons, you know, huge critter, and they only need the size of a grapefruit to get in. Um, they're truly remarkable at being able to squeeze their way into tiny places. So check these uh, roof boots. Um, masonry chimneys, uh, another favorite denning site. Uh, masonry chimneys, uh, obviously on the east uh, coast, you're gonna see a lot more masonry units in the older structures. Um, it's much like a cavity of a tree. Um, so, you know, it's a natural kind of thing for a raccoon to seek that cavity out, uh, both to have their young and just to simply get out of the weather. Uh, wildlife control operators have many options um, to, uh, to use specialized traps to get rid of them in those cases. Uh, we, can, we can do that and then we can make sure that there's no young inside at certain times of the year. You want to look for muddy paw prints. Um, these are access points here. Uh, gutters, um, the, the siding of buildings, uh, brick buildings can be simply climbed up the edges, the corners. Any of those places where the animal can gain access, you want to walk around and kind of look to see if is there any scratches, is there any rub marks, um, what kind of sign are we seeing there, you know, of damage. And that might be a clue that something's going on uh, on the roof level and, and has been for a while. All right, let's talk about some bats. So bats are mammals. Um, 
a lot of people are confused about this now. Um, it seems I've had clients tell me, oh, that the bats are leaving their feathers in my attic. Bats don't have feathers. Uh, bats are mammals. They nurse their young. Their young are called pups. Uh, my specialty for many, many years has been bats. I've done over a thousand bat jobs, uh, evictions, and um, these creatures are truly amazing. Um, but there's some seriousness that comes along with doing bat management. That's why we developed at NACOA, a National Wildlife Control Operators Association. Um, we developed some standards for the practice of removal of bats from structures. And uh, that's our bat standards course. And then we have an advanced bat course that teaches uh, the nuances of how to get rid of bats and to do it in a, in a safe way using um, equipment, uh, you know, lifts and, and booms and really gets into the, the nitty gritty on how to, um, how to take care of bats and do it in a way that makes that structure look, look great. Removal needs to be timed when the young are capable of flight. This is very, very important and it affects many real estate sales. Um, oftentimes right in the middle of your real estate market season, um, you know, June, July, uh, you're going to have those young are born, uh, young are born unable to fly. There's, um, the little brown bats, uh, what's pictured here, um, has the capability of flying with their young attached to their nipple. I know, right? It's amazing. Um. And uh, takes, I imagine, a lot of dedication. Good moms. But um, the key takeaway here is that when those bats are not able to fly, and keep in mind, she can only transport them in the first few days in an emergency situation, which is unusual. It's not normal for them to attach to the mom. Uh, it's normal for them to remain in that maternal colony until they're able to be voluntary able to fly. So. Bat specialists, guys that are wildlife control operators that are getting rid of bats half the time and at the right time of the year. Not doing so can increase the liability substantially. We'll talk a little bit more about that coming slides here. Homeowners are often terrified of bats. Bats are one of those creatures that um, you may have admiration for them. You may think they're great for the environment, but boy, when you have them in the home, it's not good. Let's talk about some litigation issues that we have with bats. Um, bats and lawsuits, there's an increased risk for a lot of things to go wrong when we deal with bats in our world as a wildlife control operator. Some of that risk may transfer over to home inspectors if they identify any damage. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about, about that. So like I said, removal at the wrong time of the year. Um, there's been cases where um, bats have uh, been evicted uh, at the wrong time of year. And as a result, those young are, they're, they're trying to find their way out of the structure. They work their way down into the living space and they pose a health and safety risk to the occupants of that structure. It is, um, it is certainly uh, a good reason to make sure you're doing your controls at the right time of the year and that you're not posing an increased risk um, to your occupants by doing it at the wrong time of the year. Uh, a good wildlife control operator can really make a real estate deal um, remain intact 
uh, he can come in, he or she can come in, evaluate that situation, talk with your, your buyers, explain the situation. And then if the sellers, um, you know, if you guys can work that out, then uh, some money can be set aside in an escrow um, until the young are able to fly and the program be completed. Um, we can come in and, and really kind of arrange a situation where we can save that sale too. It's not all doom and gloom when it comes to wildlife. Discovering wildlife and structures for home inspectors has got to be a precarious thing. And we understand that. Um, but, you know, I think it's more important to be honest with your client and upfront because boy, if you're not, I can't imagine. Um, we've had many situations where um, the homeowner was just simply uh, not 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 aware of what was going on in that home until the next maternal season. And that was not something that they wanted to look forward to. So failure to advise uh, to seek medical attention. So wildlife control, this is more related to wildlife control operators than it is to you, but I think it's important for you to know these things. Um, bats have the potential to carry rabies and we'll talk more about that, but that has some substantial risks. Risks to human health and safety increases that liability. Um, it also increases the chance that that's, that transaction may end up in, in a court of law. Um, failure to identify issues that are potentially hazardous. So um, if you inspect an area and keep in mind, I'm not a lawyer and I'm, I'm not a, a, you know, a lawyer that specializes in home inspections, but if you inspect an area and you see that there's, you know, plainly evidence that there's something going on that's pest related and you think it might be bats, I imagine that there's going to be some liability if you don't say anything about that. And so that's where we can come in as wildlife control operators to transfer some of that liability to us, uh, establish a network of wildlife control operators um, that you trust and that you've met with, that you can you can network with, you can have um, that referral look good and make you look good too. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that too in, in the end here. Remember, I'm not a lawyer and this is not to be construed as legal advice. Always seek legal counsel with an attorney specializing in your profession and licensed in your state. So bat management professionals, um, Boy, like I said earlier, um, it is very difficult to get rid of bats in a responsible way uh, and, and be effective at keeping them out. And we'll talk uh, a bit about the sizes that bats need to get into structures. I think you'll be amazed by that. This shows um, you know, a, a, a ridge vent that they're squeezing in. It's very common to see them enter through, through ridge vents. Um, they will come in through that, uh, through that opening um, a little natural gap and crack that's, uh, that's in those, um, those pieces of material. We, we have some uh, amazing training at NACOA.com that really goes much further into detail on how to inspect for wildlife damage. If you're interested in that, certainly reach out to me. But the takeaway from this slide is, slide is, is that it's hard to find professionals that do bat management and do it very well and that are, they're qualified and certified and trained across the United States. We have a find an operator page on our website at nicoa.com. 
where you can link up with folks uh, by their certifications. You can find out how they're certifi certified, what certifications they hold, uh, how long they've been a, a member of NACOA. There's a lot of information there, and you can oftentimes get a really solid guy by looking up their information. We offer um, two courses uh, related to BATS, BAT standards and, and, and the advanced BAT class. I don't imagine too many of you might be interested in taking these, um, but they're uh, it, certainly very great courses to, to teach professionals in our industry how to safely deal with BATS. Um, because BATS are so difficult to exclude and so many problems can be associated with them, it is so important to hire somebody that has the right certifications. Let's talk a little bit about health concerns regarding bats. So rabies is, um, is a big concern. Uh, not all bats carry rabies. Uh, typically uh, bats that, um, bats are not aggressive. Bats that have rabies don't necessarily show any aggressive signs or signs that they are diseased. They're one of those creatures that that uh, that disease can can be hard to detect in in their behavior. However, rabies is 99% fatal. Um, there is no cure for them for that. Rabies is contracted, uh, and it takes at least, according to the Center for Disease Control, 10 days for that disease to take hold. If somebody were was to have contact with a bat um, and get medical attention for it, then uh, the rabies series can be administered before that disease has a chance to take hold. Rabies is a disease that sometimes takes a very long time to manifest itself in the human body. Uh, there's been cases of, you know, the disease showing up very far away from the bite date, uh, but certainly that is um, a serious situation when there's a bite or a scratch. Another thing that's important is that according to the Center for Disease Control, there's a protocol put in place for folks that are sleeping with bats in a living space. Now that's loosely defined. Um, I tend to define it with my clients is if, if the person was sleeping in a bedroom and there's any chance at all that a bat could have occupied that space while they were sleeping, then they should be advised to then seek advice from a, a, a healthcare professional like a you know, like a nurse or someone that is, um, uh, you know, a family doctor, uh, ER, uh, but certainly seek that medical advice. Cost. Let's talk a little bit about cost. Um, my last client that had to go through the rabies series, um, uh, it was in excess of $18,000 for her treatment. Uh, in that case, uh, can you imagine if her family was a family of four and four people had to go through that series? This is, these are the reasons why liability is so high when it's associated with bats. It's why we're talking a lot about bats in this training, uh, this webinar. Um, and, you know, certainly any questions about this, you can always reach out to me. I'll give you my contact information at the end here. Another disease that's common is uh, a fungus. Um, that is called histoplasmosis. And histoplasmosis is a disease where, um, uh, where it's found regularly in the soil. It is not usually, um, uh, it is not usually a problem for folks uh, unless there's an accumulation or if it's breathed in. 
Um, a single bat dropping can contain the disease, however. Um, they are capable of, of grooming themselves, ingesting that fungus spore, and it be present in their gastroenterological system. So it's possible for a single bat dropping to contain those fungal spores. Um, it's particularly important um, that you uh, take these, these, these protocols seriously, uh, because imagine if you don't have any protection for your face and you're opening that hatch and bat droppings are on the other side of that, they come down and it becomes a bad day for you. You're covered in it. Let's say they've got a 1960s shag carpet that's three inches thick. Um, how exactly might you get those droppings out of that carpet? safely? Some serious questions. In that situation, you know, um, you know, I, I would hope that you have plastic down, you've got protective covering down, any droppings that are coming down can be then contained and removed without uh, having to, to spend a lot of, a, you know, a lot of money uh, hiring Serve Pro or one of these restoration companies to come in and do it in a safe manner. Uh, histoplasmosis is a disease that when you inhale it, it can get into your lungs. It also can be transmitted ocularly, so into your eye. Um, it can come, you know, that's why we, we recommend the, the full face respirators. It can be uh, transmitted uh, through your eyes as well. Now, full face respirator protects you very, very well. If you see droppings in an attic, it is very advisable not to disturb those droppings. Simply document what you see. And, um, uh, you know, don't disturb them. Bat droppings. So bats defecate and urinate. See, we're talking about poop again. Um, they defecate and urinate in flight while they're roosting. It doesn't matter. It's indiscriminate. They don't, they don't pick a latrine like a raccoon does. They're more like a squirrel. Wherever they are, they're going to go to the bathroom. Their feces um, is typically very dry and it uh, will fragment very easily. Remember that histoplasmosis can be contained in a single bat dropping. So when you're, um, when you're disturbing bat dropping in your hand for diagnosis reasons, you want that protection. You want that respirator on. Don't do this if you don't have that. Bat droppings are distinctive from rodent droppings in that they are very, um, they fragment very easily and they contain exoskeleton uh, parts of insects. So you'll see shiny parts inside of the, the dropping itself. Um, North American bats are insectivores. They, they're eating flying insects that are flying in the air and their diet, um, you know, their dropping kind of shows that it's, it's kind of a distinctive dropping. Now in the Southwest, um, it can be very hard to distinguish between mice droppings and little brown bats or other myotis species of bats. Um, because of the, the lack of humidity in the air will cause even rodent droppings to easily fragment. And, um, you know, it doesn't have those shiny parts in there, though. So that's one way to tell the difference between rodent droppings and bat droppings. Big bat droppings, about the size of a Tic Tac. Um, and little brown droppings are more the size of a mouse dropping. Pretty small. So 
Batch droppings can vary um, based on life cycle. If you have juveniles, uh, their droppings are going to be naturally smaller than the adults. So as those juveniles um, get older, the droppings are going to change in size. So there is some variance. And keep in mind that, you know, you don't have to be experts on all of this stuff. Um, if you have a good wildlife control operator that you know and you trust and is certified and trained, you can refer this out work out to them so that they can properly diagnose it and figure out exactly what's going on with that structure. There's some more um, specifics on the sizes of those droppings on the screen here. So when you see bat droppings, you want to look up. Uh, bat droppings will accumulate in piles, but only because those creatures are roosting above that pile. Um, they will be also scattered typically throughout that attic. So they're going to be a little dropping here, dropping there. Uh, but definitely when you see a pile, you want to look up and look for signs on those rafters um, or trusses to see if, um, you know, if there's been any activity. You'll oftentimes see a rub mark, which is a dark um, grease mark that is staining the wood itself. Um, you'll see crystallized urine sometimes, like what you see here on the screen. Um, when they urinate, they just, um, you know, it dribbles down that, uh, that wood. And um, it, when it dries, it turns that whitish color, and crystallizes. Bat, um, bat urine uh, can be detected in structures, um, especially in structures that have very dusty wood floors or have windows in the attic. Or in this case, uh, there's a foil wrapped um, HVAC line. You can see those, uh, that crystallized urine is showing up really good in that. And that's what that is. So that's, as those bats fly around that attic, they're urinating and that urine is leaving you signs uh, that can confirm their presence. Obviously for you, you probably don't wanna, um, you know, hang a single sign on, on saying that there's bats in the structure. Uh, but you could just simply allude to there, there's potentially droppings that need to be further explored. So bats can um, oftentimes be found roosting very close to one another. Um, typically, this is seen in maternal colonies. So you've got females that are raising young. And when they do so, they raise their young in a very clustered manner. They do that this particularly early on in the season uh, because those bats don't have fur and they hypothermiate easily. So they will huddle together and uh, that huddling um, usually results in uh, greater odor issues for the home. Also, it, it results in um, greater chances of ectoparasitic controls or, that might be needed for that. Um, those ectoparasite levels just go through the roof. Uh, bat bugs in particular, we'll talk about that in a little bit. That's a lot of fun. So, I promised that I would show you the exact size that bats need to enter a structure. And to show you by scale on the screen, you can see that this is, um, this is definitely the, the case where, you know, they can get into a small space. Uh, look at that size, that piece of paper is cut on the right there by the penny, is cut to the exact size that bats need to get in. And when you compare that size to that of a penny, you can see that that's a pretty small space. So the bat standards indicate that 18 inches off the ground and higher, every single gap and crack that bats could possibly enter needs to be covered and protected. 
So that is a monumental task, particularly with log structures. I specialize in, in, in evicting bats from log structures. Um, but it becomes, it becomes very difficult to seal every single gap and crack uh, that there is. We're talking about vents, we're talking about gable vents, ridge vents, um, we're talking about any builder's gaps or, or missing pieces of construction. You guys see it all. You see these homes that are built, um, you know, not to code and, and wildly out of, you know, out of normal uh, practice. And, and these creatures will use situations like that to get in. Uh, the other um, definition, uh, well, so the other, the other picture here shows a dime. And you can see that that 5 eighths inch is actually a little bit smaller than a dime. So that's the size that bats need to get into the structure. Bats often use uh, uh, shutters as um, roosting points, particularly in the summer. Um, so inspecting around those shutters, uh, if you see uh, window ledges and you've got droppings on those window ledges, or if you see um, uh, spider webs on the ground and you see those droppings are inside the spider webs, that's a pretty good indication that those droppings are coming from above and uh, uh, link bats when you see that. Guano here is located in a spider web that's underneath a soffit return. This is a wood soffit. Um, that gap on the right uh, is large enough for bats to squeeze under and get in. Let's talk a little bit about ectoparasites. So bat bugs, these creatures, these beautiful creatures here uh, are bat bugs. And bat bugs are a lot like bed bugs, except they're sucking and feeding on bats instead of humans. Bat bugs and bed bugs suck on the blood of their hosts. Um, they uh, have very similar behaviors, um, except for when they are uh, found inside the living space. Bats can bring some of these things into your, your, your structures and these ectoparasitic concerns uh, can become problematic for clients. Bat bugs have the capability of um, feeding on hosts that are uh, not bats and, and they can um, become problems in structures. So. I don't have anything by scale to show you on this, but I like to tell my clients that uh, the bat bugs, um, an adult bat bug, mind you, they go through several morphs. They go through several instars where they, when they are in an egg form, they're almost microscopic. And as they, they molt and they go through the next stage, um, they get bigger, they have a blood meal and then they molt, they blood meal molt uh, through six to eight instars typically. But um, a, an adult is about the size of an O, the letter O on a keyboard, now about the size of a letter O on a keyboard. When they're very tiny and they, they are in their first instar, you can almost not even see them at all. They're almost um, impossible to see with the naked eye. But keep in mind that wildlife can bring fleas, mites, ticks, other creatures in as well. Um, inspection tools. So for, um, for poop, uh, particularly small poop, I like to use this uh, empire rule. Um, it's a good, uh, good one to get some exact sizes. 
So you can make, you know, if you're, you're a really detailed kind of person and you want to notate, you know, put that rule right next to a dropping, take a picture of it, photograph it, uh, and then maybe make a referral for that client. It's got um, the ability to really uh, make very small measurements. Uh, that tool is particularly important for um, diagnosing species of bats. Use your sniffer. So uh, don't be afraid to use your sense of smell. Obviously, if you're in an attic or a crawl space or an area where it's you know, potentially infested with critters, you want to wear your full face respirator and that's not the time or place to, to take it off to smell. Um, but if you're inspecting through the normal course of entering a home and you detect an odor, be aware that that odor may be associated with raccoons, bats, squirrels, and other creatures. Uh, over the course of 20 years of working in this industry, um, I got so good at identifying particular species that in many cases, I would open up the front door, walk in and say, oh my, you have a horrible bat problem. And the client would look at me like, you're nuts. <laughs> That's that's the way old farmhouses smell. No, and I'm about ready to prove it to you. Get up there and, and take a bunch of photos and, and show exactly what's going on. But use your sense of smell. And uh, put your detective hat on. So many times with wildlife, particularly wildlife that's new to structures, these signs are not obvious. They're very hard to detect. You're gonna have to put all the pieces together to, to, to identify potential wildlife issues. Let's talk about referrals. So like I said, I, um, I serve on the board of directors for the National Wildlife Control Operators Association. And um, we have members across the United States, just like NACHI has all of, all of you guys, we've got members and we do certified training and, um, you know, uh, we have different levels of certifications for folks. Um, we have some of our members that take advantage of all of our certifications and they're very highly qualified. And then you have others that are less, less qualified. Um, but I think it's safe to say that when you reach out to a national organization like the National Wildlife Control Operators Association, those members care enough to be part of this. You guys here are looking for training. You're looking for knowledge. And you want to do that probably because you want to be a responsible business owner. You want to be professional in your field. You want to be a rock star. You want to go and you want to learn things. The same is true with NACOA members. Most NACOA members are really good. Uh, they're dedicated to the industry and they want to make, um, you know, they, they want to do the best that they can in their businesses and keeping safe, all of it. So if you're in the course of, uh, of doing, in, 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 what I would suggest is that um, you network with individuals that are NACOA members right now. So go on to their website, uh, nacoa.com slash consumers, and uh, go to find a wildlife control operator near you. Our website is getting redone. And it's a little difficult to find things. And I apologize about that. Um, it's been forever. There, there's some snafu that I don't understand, some technical thing about our database working with the, the website, but we are working on that. Uh, but go to that tool and find the operators that are in your area. And then go to the ones that have the most certifications with NACOA, call them and sit down and have lunch with them. Because you never know where you're gonna, when you're gonna run into a situation like this and you wanna have those referrals ready. 
And don't just trust every anyone just because they're a NACOA member. Don't automatically trust them. Sit down and, and have lunch with them. Develop a relationship with them. See what, what they're really about. Um, your reputation is important. It's everything. Um, I think you'll find that most responsible, uh, decent operators are going to have no problem and welcome sitting down with you and having lunch or breakfast. Um, great way to meet people and a great way to have a referral. So when you run into some of this stuff, you can deflect some liability. You can give some solutions um, to folks that may not have uh, any solutions. Um, keep in mind, it is hard to find qualified members. Um, you know, we it's this industry is is a new industry, and we're growing. Um, it's it's hard to find good good operators, but the wildlife uh, operators, wildlife control operators, with the National Wildlife Control Operators Association, are a great place to start. So, um, I this course is is really. This this webinar is really abbreviated here. Um, there's a lot of information that's out there. Um, we would like to to bring more training to different industries, and we may do that at some point down here in the future. Check back with me. But gosh, if you guys have questions, please don't feel um, you know that you can't uh, reach out. Um, that is my email address, and uh, I, uh, I live and breathe wildlife control and welcome any questions that you, you guys have sent in and certainly uh, keep my contact information for the future. If you need, ever need anything, just, just reach out. AJ, are you there? Looks like Darren Myers asking, uh, can bats be evicted in the winter? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, bats can, uh, well, so our standards First of all, understand that bats behave different in different parts of the country. So big brown bats in the Midwest over winter in structures, um, boy, my Illinois office, every time the temperature would drop substantially 20, 30 degrees in 24 hours, we would get calls for bats inside the living spaces. Um, they would wake up from their, their hibernaculum. They would enter the living space trying to find their way out of that structure and show themselves. And so in Colorado, we never saw that uh, because the weather in Colorado and the environmental conditions were different. So to answer your question, um, our standards say that we cannot install one-way devices over winter because of certain regions, there may be overwintering bats in there that will not exit until the winter is over. So is there some things that we can do? Yes, we can initiate a program we can put one ways on. We just can't ensure that those bats would leave those places until the weather does warm up. Typically, it's got to be above 50 degrees, no, um, no precipitation and uh, little wind uh, for us to count one of those days. And then I typically go three to five days. Um, I think three is the minimum, well, at least three, three of those days before we say that it's clear. Like I said before, uh, if you guys have any questions you want to reach out, uh, please, uh, please do so. I, I, I truly love talking about this stuff, and um, I'm very impressed with your organization. You guys run it very well. Good night. <laughs>